0: It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis.
1: And I'm Sky David. Happy Snowmageddon weekend. For the second weekend in a row, we are expecting some snow.
0: Yeah, it's Thursday morning. We're recording the podcast and I'm looking out grayish white sky out Feels like a little precipitation is in the air and the hope of big snow sky. That's right. I
1: went to the grocery store this morning. It was 8 a.m., which generally the public's. Not a lot of people there at 8 a.m. There were a lot of people there, and there was not a lot of product on the shelves.
0: Yeah, one to two inches being called for. So that is a snow in. (laughs) That is a dusting of snow. (laughs) Not in North Carolina, it's not. We shut down and eat a lot of bread, drink a lot of milk. What
1: is the what is the reasoning behind the bread and milk?
0: I have lived in North Carolina pretty much my entire life. I To this day, I can't tell you what we're doing with the bread and the <laughs> milk. <laughs> Apparently, we need lots of it. I think the fear is that we're going to lose electricity, which is, uh, you know, that's possible, and that we need to be able to drink milk, and we need to be able to eat a lot of sandwiches interesting yeah my, you,
1: my first year moving here was the year of that viral photo on glenwood avenue yeah and i had only been here you know six or eight months and i remember one of my friends from home sending me the photo and i was like is this you is this how you all react and i'm like i didn't create this mess
0: yeah well you know that was a big snow. had kids yeah. sleeping at school you know and, and It's different. I know for folks who come down from the north, we don't have snow plows. But
1: see, the logic here is flawed to me because every year that I've been here, there has been a snow. Mm -hmm. So I keep hearing like we don't have the infrastructure for it, but like it continues to happen. So like maybe we should get it.
0: Yeah, we should probably get some plows. Yeah, maybe so. But, yeah, I mean, culture down here is we shut down, it's a snow day, you work from home, it's kind of a ditch day, and it's just the way it is. It's I I like it. I mean, I like that we don't, you know, oh, plowing through, we're going to go to work. I mean, my wife goes to work. She's a nurse practitioner, so she's got to go to work. But for the most part, if you can stay home, stay home. And, I mean, even our governor gets on, uh, He said We already
1: have an emergency order in place. Yeah,
0: for one to two inches of snow.
1: I- remember when i was growing up you would need like a six or eight inch snow forecast and then you would just turn the radio on and listen to the radio and i would sit there and watch the snow come down like we really had to have ice right to get out of school but you listen to the radio them calling schools like whether you're going to get a delay or not you know Big, like You really build up your hopes and dreams around a snow day.
0: Yeah, but we need the snow to go away next week. We have a full week next week going on with some clients coming into town, but we just came off a very busy week. This week at the General Assembly, at least yesterday.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a busy week. However, both chambers returned yesterday. We got the news on Friday that the Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in the redistricting case on starting on February second.
0: So they come into session yesterday and it's all around delaying the primary. Originally we're gonna have the primary in March. They moved it to may Mm -hmm. and now they're talking about moving it to june 7th
1: they voted in both the house and the senate to go ahead and delay those primaries saying it's going to create some confusion with the court case no matter what happens in both the house and the senate it was a complete party line vote and the democrats are saying one this is a problem because it's the last week of school and a lot of election sites are at schools, and so kids are going to be taking final exams. How is this going to work out? And I think Senator Daniel said yesterday, well, that, was, that hasn't been something we thought about, but we'll figure it out later.
0: So the bill passes. There's this problem. It sounds like Senator Warren yeah. Daniel acknowledges the problem. The bill is now on Governor Cooper's desk. What are we hearing?
1: We're hearing that he's going to veto it. And because it was a party line vote, they're probably not going to override that veto. So they came into session yesterday to take this vote that it will ultimately not change anything. Okay. Welcome to politics.
0: <laughs> all right. So I guess all eyes are on the Supreme Court at this point. That's right. We do have some action that's going to happen in the General Assembly starting next week. I spoke to Representative John Torbett, who is the senior chair of the Education Oversight Committee.
1: He's also the senior Do Politics Better podcast personality.
0: Yeah, he's the OG. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he was the first guy who came on to the podcast and we had never interviewed a legislator on the podcast we've done, too, and it's just you and I talking, which was fun. Uh, but yeah, m- major props to Chairman Torbett. But he said yesterday he's going to start hearings on Monday on education oversight. Uh, we have a couple clients that fall into education work, and they've Got some partnership money from the state, and I said, hey, we would love to come and talk about the good work we're doing because of the General Assembly. This is all part of an announcement that was made last week where Speaker Moore made appointments to the oversight committees.
1: That's right. He made all of those appointments. You saw it flowing through Twitter, folks saying, thanks to the speaker, I was appointed to these different oversight committees, which just indicates that, you know, we're still in in session and we will be having these oversight committees up until the start of short session.
0: Oversight committees, they're not handling legislation. They're not running bills. Although these oversight committees can make recommendations for the General Assembly to take up legislation in the short session. I'll get to that in a minute. But what they do is, so if you got an appropriation from the state, if you are working on policy work that has to do with any of the buckets of the oversight committee, so you got transportation, education, health and human services, you come in. And it's a chance for you to talk about the good work you're doing. It's also an opportunity to bring in kind of some trouble spots. So, you know, if Health and Human Services is having an issue with Medicaid and maybe there's an overrun, then chances are you're going to hear from the secretary or you're going to hear from the staff. And it, it can sometimes be contentious, but this is kind of a checks and balances kind of way of just keeping an eye on what you spent in the budget or a bill you pass. Sometimes they pass a bill, realize that there's some problems with the bill and you need to make modifications. One of the ways oversight can help interest groups though, is that, you know, we've, we've passed the crossover deadline where if you want to submit a bill, it has to be through one chamber, by a set date, that date has come and gone. So if your bill didn't cross over, you're ineligible for your bill to be heard this biennium. However, it's a loophole that interest groups can use. And that is, if you can get the oversight committee, to make a recommendation, a formal voted recommendation that they address this issue or an issue, then that bill can be heard in the short session. So you might see some maneuverings going on, lobbyists, legislators, interest groups that want to see something addressed in the short session. Using the oversight committee is your opportunity.
1: So for our second staffer interview, we sat down with Andre Bellaveau and talked to him about his particular brand and similar to our discussion with Brent Woodcox, conservatism in a younger generation and what that looks like for the future. Welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you.
2: Thank you, I'm excited to be here.
1: To kick us off, tell us about what your job is at the General Assembly. You
2: know, that's a really great question. I wish someone would tell me, actually. (laughs) 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 I work for Senator Paul Newton. I'm currently his policy advisor. Um, And it's interesting because I feel like that doesn't accurately describe everything that I do. So of course I do policy research and then advise on particular policy matters. Um, most of the, although funny enough, most of the policy matters that I advise Senator Newton on, he needs no advising. It's very, it's interesting to advise Senator Paul Newton about energy policy when, when right. talking about things like that. But you know, doing different research and, and really, I, I'm, I'm more of, I guess, his legislative director in a way. Uh, so we have a legislative assistant uh, that that works for Senator Newton as well. So I kind of help. Help him and, and supervise some of the office operations there. Um, but really, what really what I do is uh, I help Senator Newton with uh, talking points. We talk through floor speeches. Uh, again, do policy research and analysis. Help with bill drafting. Help initiate bill drafting. So I'm sort of like the the intercessor between Senator Newton and central staff, mm-hmm. Senator Newton and lobbyists. Senator Newton, and anyone else that wants to, (laughs) nobody gets to see the wizard, not nobody, not know how. That's what I, uh, I'm essentially the gatekeeper.
1: (laughs) So what would you say your policy areas that y'all really focus on in your office are?
2: The the main ones for Senator Newton obviously would be tax policy. Um, He's one of the finance chairs. Uh, So that's, that's a big one for us. Election integrity. Um, He's one of the uh, redistricting and elections chairs in the Senate. Uh, So Uh, anything revolving around election policy uh, and then the energy bill um, and to think energy policy regulatory and any kind of regulatory action with you know agriculture and energy is really focused on nothing very important Uh (laughs) (laughs) sorry i fell asleep (laughs) Uh, no i mean um, i mean arguably we've we've worked on some of the you know, some of the larger pieces of legislation that, that have come through. Um, and, the uh, energy bill was probably one of the biggest pieces of
0: legislation this session, right?
2: For sure. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, it's... <laughs> some of the, the some of the staffers in the house will probably appreciate me saying this but have you ever seen that meme where it's like the guy that like has like the the bronze medal but he's like shaking the champagne bottle <laughs> and like whatever because the house crafted this like massive bill did yeah. all this work for months and then we got it and then we're like Okay, thank you, and then yeah. pass it across the finish line. <laughs> so, yeah, whittled it down to like seven from yeah, forty-five to seven. It pages, went from right? forty-five pages to I think ten in the okay. in the final draft. So yeah, we we uh, took a, a different direction, but I will say the uh, the house did you know they did yeoman's work for sure. They got they because of the work that they did, uh, they were able to get us a point where we could get yeah. to where where we did where we were able to negotiate with the governor's office, get to a point where governor cooper signed the bill it is a bill that became law mm-hmm. which as a, i mean as a staffer that was a really cool experience right mm-hmm. um you know being able to start you know from the second it hit the senate side uh you know sitting in a room with you know other other policy staff from senator Berger's office and sitting there with uh senator newton and being able to i mean one of the cool experiences for me now seeing a bill signed into law is there are words in that bill there are now words in statute that came from my head. Yeah. yeah. Right, They're like that they were those there's ideas that I put out there, you know, because of the research I was doing and the conversations that we had that like that yeah, that's a great idea, you know, in the center noon. That's a great idea. Let, let's write that down. Uh, and of course, I mean, he's, you know, he's a energy guru to begin with. Yeah. So, it was really cool to get that experience to work with him and uh that's definitely a highlight of the session for me. I think the energy bill was what a great first session. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. End, to end it off for
0: sure. And we had Senator Newton on the podcast. He was such a great guest and he kind of gave us a peek behind the curtain as to how he legislates. But I'd like to ask you because you you alluded to it. Senator Paul Newton, he knows a little bit about energy policy. He does. <laughs> so You are working with him. You are corralling, I imagine, 50 different interest groups Mm. from traditional energy to solar to alternative energy. What is it like working on something that is so big, so important, so huge, and you have a boss that has probably forgotten more than you (laughs) know about
2: energy policy? Yeah, that made my job incredibly easy. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I love about Senator Newton is that um, he he operates like a mentor. Okay. I mean, and he is a mentor to me for sure. But he op- he wants to empower the people that work for him. So he could have come in, and he knows this. He could have he could have come in and said, "This is what we are going to do. These are the policy things that I think we need. I write that you know here are my bullet points. Write this into statutory language and get back to me in a week." He okay. could have said that, yeah. but he didn't, right? He's like, "No, I want." These are my broad ideas. I want, you know, I want y'all to come back and tell me what what you and are these good ideas? Yeah. And it created this dialogue that of course he took charge of, but he empowered he empowered me and and us to work on that bill which and Frankly, that's how he operates all the time, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I really appreciate about him.
1: Let's take a couple steps back. I think listeners can listen to this and know that you are not from North Carolina based on your accent.
2: What are you saying, Sky? <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my uh, you know, my my Raleigh accent's not coming through.
1: <laughs> but tell us about how you ended up in North Carolina and how you ended up in North Carolina politics.
2: So I'm originally from upstate New York, uh, born and raised in. Uh, Montgomery, New York. After high school, I worked actually for uh, several years in emergency services. Um, so when I first graduated, I made the decision to do the community college thing. And uh, my my real goal is I wanted to be a police officer. Hmm. That is That was something I, you know, growing up, I always said I wanted to do one of three things. I wanted to be a police officer, a firefighter, or a priest. Wow. Um, growing up in a very Catholic family. <laughs> um, and I grew up around people who were Firefighters, police officers, and priests. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna do one of the, those three things. And funny enough, I've kind of dabbled into each one of those three wow. things uh, throughout my life. I mean, I was, you know, grew up, as you know, I was an altar server. I was actually in a pre-seminary program for several months when I was 18. Wow. Uh, so did actually consider maybe I might, um, you know, my faith is still something that's very important to me. Um, I'm I'm a horrible Catholic now because I'm an Episcopalian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Didn't quite make it to being a police officer, but I was a police dispatcher for many years. Um, Actually, my first job out of high school, I got hired as a part-time police dispatcher uh, for a local police department where I grew up. I served uh, both in career and and volunteer roles throughout uh, different times in my career. I served as a firefighter, uh, as an EMT I uh, was an EMT for several years in the city of Newburgh. Um, I mean, for those who don't know, it's a, not the not the best place in the world, um, but it, it, I learned a lot about people working there. Uh, you know, Working the night shift in the summer, uh, on a weekend in a, in, in a place like Newburgh, um, it really humbles you, yeah. and you learn a lot about the human experience there. Even though I enjoyed being a firefighter and enjoyed EMTing and everything else, there was always part of me that I was like, I delayed going back to school. Mm-hmm because I did this through most of my twenties. I think I spent almost nine years in some capacity in emergency services through my twenties, then went back and finished school. Uh, so there was always times like, I wish I just, you know, got into it right away and went away to school. But there was something I think very critical about that time period in my life.
1: And um, where did you go to school?
2: I went to Marist college, uh, which is a school in, it's in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mm-hmm. I did my undergrad in, uh, in history, I did a focus in early American history. Oh, wow. So um, my area that I that I studied the most, and I did my undergrad dissertation on, uh, was on the American Revolution. Hmm. So the kind of the colonial period, revolutionary era, early national period; those are my that's my bread and butter. So give us a year. What what time frame are we talking about here? So I graduated from Marist with my undergrad degree in 2019. Okay, and when I left college, I was like, okay, I'm going to get a PhD in history. And I'm going to be a professor. And that was actually the reason, I think, that was the impetus for me to go back to school. Mm-hmm. In September of 2019, I had got accepted to the University of Sheffield in England mm. to do a, a master's program in historical research. Mm. Which I thought would be a good segue for me to then apply to PhD programs in the States. And while I was there, I learned a lot of things about myself that I love history, but I'm not an... Like, I'm an intellectual but I'm not an academic oh, okay. uh, in the sense of I'm not a I'm not the best student <laughs> 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 and I just thought seven years it will take me seven years to get a PhD yeah. no <laughs> yeah. we're not we're not doing it and I also while I was there I kind of really discovered my political voice yeah. um, which I which I think I never had really done in the past I had opinions like anybody else um, and I was expressive of different opinions, you know, I became sort of like the one issue guy, right? Yeah. And I feel like through most of my 20s, I went through kind of a whirlwind of different, you know, maybe testing the waters of different political philosophies and kind of finding where I fit because I, I felt through a lot of, because of some, what I felt were conflicting political views, I felt like I didn't have a home. So there was some times where I'm like, maybe I'm more liberal, maybe I'm more, you know, I grew up in a conservative mm-hmm. household and when I was 18, I mean, I, I by the first election I ever voted in was for John McCain when he ran against uh, President Obama. 2008. That's right. That was the first election I was eligible to, to vote in. So I, I have the t-shirt to prove it. All right. I think I'm a seeker by nature, right? Um, you know, I, I think deeply about a lot of things, probably more than I should. I'm a classic overthinker. Uh-huh. Um, so I use that time uh, in my 20s as a really time to really discover myself. But I think I kind of came to the point where at at, the, at this time in 2019 in England where I just I found my political voice um, because I think there were just issues in the past that polarized me to a place where I couldn't really think fully for myself yeah. uh, and I found myself finally doing that and it was during that time where I was like well if I'm not going to get a PhD in history I think I want to get involved in politics or government of some kind. So I came home for a Christmas break in tw- uh, December of 2019 and started thinking about what, should I, what, will, I, what will my next steps be because I think I'm going to actually withdraw from this this history program, which I did. And it was fortuitous because I withdrew from the program in February of 2020. Oh. And <laughs> so when I moved back to the States, uh, February 16th, 2020. And then the world shut down just a couple weeks later, yeah, it did. Um, which then catapulted a whole other scenario of now we're locked down and we're in COVID. So I applied to Johns Hopkins, get accepted. Uh, so I was going to start in the summer of 2020. Uh, and then they announced that the entire cohort that was going to be beginning in 2020 well, can do it 100 percent online, and I said, "Oh, that means I don't have to move to DC because that's expensive." <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, "So where do, where do I want to live?" And I actually had a bunch of friends uh, who lived in North Carolina, oh. uh, so I'd spent a lot of time in North Carolina, knew enough about it that this would be a place I wanted to you know, to move in, and live. so I said, let's move to North Carolina. Oh. Yep, you know, so that the the cats and I moved, I arrived here. Mm-hmm. Um and then less, you know, I moved. So when did I move? I moved in the end of July of 2020. Wow. Okay. And I applied for a job at the General Assembly in December of 2020 and I got hired in the beginning of March of last year, March
0: 2021. Oh wow. So wow. So let's talk about this political philosophy. While you were in England, you were kind of struggling. Parts of you were liberal, parts of you were conservative. You gave your, your voting record pretty decidedly conservative there. But what was going on? Where, where
2: where was the struggle? I grew up in a, I'd say, a pretty conservative household. You know, my, my dad was a, a Sean Hannity listener. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of a very classic Republican. Um you know, it's, I don't even really know what my if my mother is a registered Democrat or Republican. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question, Mom. What are you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but <laughs> she sounds wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's, she's she's great. We we love we love Pat. My my favorite my think, my favorite thing about my mother is she's not political. Oh, so you. actually, I think her they're po- my favorite people. Yeah, yeah. I think, so her, her politics are probably just whatever I tell her, right? She'll call <laughs> yeah. me. Who do I vote for? Okay, honey, thank you. And that's, right. you know, that, that's probably the extent of my mom's politics. Um, but I grew up in a conservative household, and um, I I think I embraced a lot of that, um, and definitely in my younger years. Obviously, in the first times I was able able to vote, I saw myself as a Republican, as a conservative, and then I think through my in my twenties, um, you know, there were just certain things about not necessarily about conservatism. I don't think I ever really lost what you know the my desire of kind of keeping you know, tradition, you know, know, I'm I'm institutionalist traditions are very important to me. But I I just struggled with some things at the time during my 20s, and this is around, you know, probably 2012, 2015, you know, marriage equality was a big debate, but this is pre-Obergefell. And that was something that was very important to me. Um, So I struggled, you know, as someone who, you know, believes in the Second Amendment and believes in the things I think we, we believe as conservatives, but I found myself at odds with some of these, very few social issues, because I find myself to be, even today, very socially conservative. But I just found myself not really finding a home. And because of the polarization of our politics, even back then, you know, we're obviously, I think we're in a different place now, <laughs> for sure. But even back then, there was still, you know, you had to, if you didn't check off all the boxes, I felt like I didn't have a political home. Mm-hmm. Um, but during that time, you know, we're now in the fall of 2019, uh, I really found myself um more at home in the Republican party than I ever did before. So much so where I wanted to get involved in partisan politics. Mm-hmm. And I think there were people at the time in the, where the Republican party had gotten, um, by 2019 where I had, I think I had political idols to look up to, you know, there were, there were openly gay Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Grinnell was appointed by Donald Trump, uh, you know, to be on his cabinet. Um, I think so there were, there were people who I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is okay. I can, I can, I can, I can be, I can be, I can be on the team now. For listeners, Sky and I have gotten
0: to know you pretty well since March of 2021. We worked on a bill together out of Senator Newton's office. That's right. So we've had lots of conversations, but bottom line here is you are a gay man. And there was this issue with, do I have a home in the Republican party because there are strains Within the party that seemed to be struggling with equality issues,
2: is that what is that what you're saying here? For, for sure, okay. yeah. And I think once I became more comfortable with these are my politics, right? Yeah. I became more um, comfortable with being able to um, describe my positions in a way where I felt I had more command over what my views were. Um, I was able to describe what my political philosophy is as a conservative and I think also being being in the UK and around a lot of Tories I found myself <laughs> I, was, um, <laughs> uh, I, I was like oh I'm um, okay yeah I'm I'm pretty much a, a Tory conservative so uh-huh. yep okay there you got me there with with my you know John Lewis bag and uh, shopping at Debenhams those are inside jokes for Tories in the UK <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah
1: we have a big listener base over there yeah I know I have, yeah I think
2: we have 30 if, if oh Bob so Bain these 30 right, yeah. these 30 listeners will, will love that. In the UK. <laughs> um, but you know, that, that uh, all kidding aside, I think that really, Um, I just I found my voice. And I felt I, I had a stronger command over my views, which I will say this, I mean, I came out when I was 23. In the firehouse, you know, I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was deep in emergency services. I had zero issues. I, I can't think of one friend, one family member that people were just like, okay what's for dinner you know, like, like, <laughs> you know it's like so are you buying drinks like what's going on mm-hmm. I don't under, you know but uh, no one cared what I will say and I think this actually speaks to a lot of our politics today when I came out as conservative when I started being more vocal about my views and particularly when I came out as a Republican I lost more friends then mm-hmm. than I did um, you know, most I'm sure it's no surprise for anyone to learn that you know most gay people or LGBT people, tend to be liberal mm-hmm. um, and people, and I, I will say this is, you know, it, it is true on both sides. People cannot fathom a gay conservative. Mm-hmm. It's almost, people see it as an oxymoron, mm-hmm. um, but I can tell you we exist. Um, mm-hmm. it, my boyfriend is a conservative. Um, he's <laughs> he's not partisan, uh, which I'm kind of jealous about actually because <laughs> he doesn't get involved in, in Republican politics, but he is very conservative. What, I think what is different about someone who is a gay conservative or a gay Republican is that um, it, it's sort of this thing like it's even awkward talking about it because to me it's just this inconsequential thing, mm. right? Um, and it doesn't usually come up very often because I just don't make it a huge part of my personality. It's just something that uh, something that exists about about me, um, and I think that probably does stand a bit from just kind of my conservative worldview. I think it's just it's just. Yep, that's it. Not a big deal. Let's move on to something I'd rather be talking about, you know, any other number of, of policy positions sure. than, than anything else. So,
0: well, let me ask you this, though.
2: If the party, the Republican
0: Party, thought a little bit more about their messaging and communications, they would open themselves up to attracting more gay, lesbian, transgender people to the party. I mean, it's it's
2: kind of, there's a reason, right? I mean, as far as... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it, it shouldn't surprise anybody that, you know, the GOP, we have not always been the best on on, on messaging for the, these kinds of issues. No, There's no question about that. That's an objective truth, right? <laughs> um, I, but I, what I will say is that at a national party level, I mean, love him or hate him, you know, Donald Trump did change the, a lot of the landscape in the GOP. Um, I think, you know, he was the first president of the United States on day one to support same-sex marriage. That is a that is a political fact. Love it or hate it, it's the truth. Um, and, you know, even though, you know, Rick Grinnell was the first openly gay cabinet member to be appointed by a president of the United States, and that was Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and the on a national level, I do think the GOP, I mean, they just started, we can... I'm not a big fan of the name, but they just started their their pride coalition, right, on the, the national GOP. Mm. So I do think our national level Republican politics are starting to recognize that there is an area that they've not tapped into and their messaging has not been good. I do think in North Carolina, in GOP circles, um, we are starting to see a reception of the idea that there are gay conservatives and that we have a voice in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a, a log cabin Republican chapter here in North Carolina. It was... So it, it was in existence in the past. It was defunct. Um, we just rechartered in August, mm-hmm. so fairly new. Uh, and I'm the vice president of that organization. And what Log Cabin Republicans is, um, it's an organization for LGBT Republicans or allies. Um, you know, there are, there are straight people who are mm-hmm. card-carrying members of the Log Cabin Republicans who, and, and really the, the focus, I think, of that organization is to have a home for people Who are LGBT conservatives? Who are Republicans? um, Who want to advocate for different positions and also try to advocate for this concept of a big tent party? You know, we're not a a a monolith. Even even within uh, even within a group like Log Cabin, we have differing views on on transgender issues. We have different views on even marriage. You know, there we have there are people who have a a diverse you know diverse viewpoint even within that organization. But I think it is good to have a group where at least you can be around people um, of similar like mind and we can advocate for, for different issues or at least advocate, because I, I think the strongest thing that we care about is electing more Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's kind of our driving force um, is that we want to see more Republicans get elected into office.
0: You talked about the struggle you had earlier in your student life when you were in England. And here you are working in, Republican politics here in North Carolina. You're a staffer to one of the most powerful senators in the General Assembly. Give us the Andre
2: Beliveau political philosophy. Sure. So, and I think, like I had said before, that time in England um, was really formative for me for finding my voice Um, and having someone who was staunchly conservative and Republican, younger in life, kind of going through some different phases in my 20s and arriving at a place where I went to England believing I was conservative. Um, And I think like I had said before, being exposed to sort of Tory politics really allowed me to find my voice as I I really identified with that I identified as sort of this Tory conservative. So the most Tory conservative I can
0: think of, and I'm going back to my comparative politics days at UNC Greensboro
2: (laughs) is Margaret Thatcher. Love Margaret Thatcher. Is
0: that who you are <laughs> at
2: essence? You are a Margaret Thatcher conservative. I, I mean, to be fair, I think I'm more of a, and I don't know how many of your, your uh, listeners would know, but I think I'm more of a Jacob Rees-Mogg Tory conservative. That's very obscure. here. <laughs> Can we just back it up to sure. Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> sure. I mean, I do. Uh, so Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's in the leader. He's in the government leadership under the the current uh, the current Tory government. I think he's actually the the head of the, the leader of the house, I think is his current position. Okay. Um, but so love Margaret Thatcher. So, I mean, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan are two, um, political heroes of mine. Uh, even back I mean, if we're going to go way back further, Abraham Lincoln, uh, probably my favorite president. Uh, and then of course, you know, you've got like, you know, Adam Smith, John Locke, sure. all the usual suspects, gotcha, gotcha, Burke, yeah. um, big influence. I mean, so I think I'm an intellectual conservative, sure. right? That's really, I think if, if I were to, Say label yourself. What's your political philosophy? Um, I view myself as a as an intellectual conservative, and I think that that's something I'm also very passionate about. I think there is a there is a rich intellectual tradition amongst conservatism that I think we need to resurface in um, in the American brand of conservatism today. Um, and I think I find greater affinity today in American politics with the writings of our founders in the you know 18th and 19th century than maybe I do with some of our more Uh, contemporary conservative politics. I find myself more at home in the 18th and 19th century than uh, I necessarily do in the 21st century.
1: You came from New York, you come to North Carolina, this young conservative begs the question with you being so involved in Republican politics, are you going to run for office?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you wouldn't ask this question. (laughs) Uh, So I think the, the easy simple answer is no. Um, but I'm a never say also a never say never kind of person. I don't, I don't see myself running anytime soon. I don't know what's going to happen with, you know, where, you know, getting married, raising a family, where that's going to end up happening if that happens, God willing. Um, so I think if I'm in a place long enough and I feel this call to serve, I think that's one thing I've always felt in life is this, um, this desire for service. I think that's what called me to be a firefighter and a EMT, and then now working, you know, in, in mm-hmm. state government. Um, so I'm I'm very attuned to the fact that I do feel this natural call to service.
0: What do you love the most about North Carolina? I mean, it's the food,
2: for sure. Yeah, good <laughs> I mean food. That, that's uh, a. <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, we can we need to work on our Italian food. Yeah, um, Michael Lazaro would agree. He, yeah, I, I think we might have started a battle because of we we uh, commented back and forth about pizza. We had we had some <laughs> we had some hot pizza takes on on Twitter, and I think Brent Woodcox came at came at us and added a whole bunch of uh, uh, oh, yeah. pizza places in Raleigh. He's like, these people want a word with you. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But um, but no, I mean, I I you know I love North Carolina food. I love North Carolina culture too. I mean, I've always been a big fan of you know bluegrass and country. Music and yeah. that's obviously. Uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Even growing in upstate New York, we like to pretend we're from the South. Um, so, there, <laughs> so there actually were some cultural things of moving to North Carolina that were very that felt like home to me. Mm. Um, but I think really it, the people I've met here, uh, mo- I think is what I what I love the most about North mm. Carolina. Um, the, you know, the friend, the friends I've made. You know, my my colleagues that I've met at work. You know, people who work at the General Assembly or General Assembly adjacent like you know like you and sky um it's i think the people here and and just yeah and like i said before i I find myself finding home in people and um the people here are just wonderful and it makes it a great place to live
0: we've talked about the general assembly being like a family a kind of dysfunctional family (laughs) sky likes to say uh you, you think that's true you find that to be the case
2: I think, I, I don't know if I'm, am I contractually obligated to say no? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, no, I th- we are definitely a family. And it's interesting to me, working in the, I mean, no surprise, I think, to you or any of your listeners, the House and the Senate are two very different, uh, two, two different families that are living in the same house. Um, That's true. But we,
0: um, I, yeah, but it's, it's like been, a loft party in the House above a, a library. Yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a great analogy. It's, it's very,
2: it's very true. But I mean, and I'm, I'm in a hallway with all other Senate offices and then, but if you walk around to the other side of the building, you're like, whoa, this is a totally different, <laughs> it's, what's going on? Um, no, but, I, and it's interesting too, like having met, um, some, you know, having met and now become friends with several house staffers, the camaraderie, um, at least at a staff level, uh, is, is, is actually, I think, I think really good in my experience between, a House and Senate staff, but the Senate staff in particular, um, you know, having having built some, I think, very strong uh, friendships with some of my fellow staffers. I mean, you know, Brent Woodcox is my next door neighbor in our in our hallway, and um, you know, it's interesting. You know, Brent was one of the first staffers I met, because he works really closely with Senator Newton. Uh, so, having worked with him first as an LA, and now as Senator Newton's policy advisor, and now being Uh, next door neighbors to Brent since my office moved. Um, He has been like a mentor to me at the, at the general assembly. And it's actually his fault that I said yes to be on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) Uh, When you, when you first asked me to, to be on it, I went in and said to Brent, I'm like, Brian asked me to be on the Do Politics Better podcast, and and we had a whole conversation about it. And he convinced me to do it, so it's all his fault.
0: All right, way to go, Brent Woodcock.
2: <laughs>
1: when you get those hateful tweets, remind him of that. That's
2: right. Yeah, well, my, if, if if my if my Twitter following increases, it's it's definitely his fault for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, he but he's been great, and you know the the staff on the, the you know the pro, in the Pro Tem staff and kind of working very closely with with a lot of them and and the other some of the other staffers in the in the senate it is like a family yeah. and it's interesting how quickly um i, I found it very interesting you know, I've, I've been there almost just just under a year um but you know i've invited people to my home i've had poker night at my house and you know we've all hung out outside of work and the you know the camaraderie that has built there um is it's very genuine yeah. and coming from you know working in the firehouse and in emergency services where it's like a brotherhood yeah. it was interesting to find something very similar at the general assembly which i didn't think i, you know, I didn't know what to expect mm-hmm. right i mean never having worked and this is my first political government job so not really knowing what i was getting uh into was interesting but what i didn't expect was actually becoming uh friends with members like like senators yeah. um and that's that was always interesting to me because you don't know what that, what that what that dynamic is going to look like going into it but actually be becoming friends with several senators you know who you know effectively I work for uh, has been interesting too and there's some great relationships that have been built there as well
1: people forget that you are also the first and only referee we had at the Do Politics Better Kickball League so if you could add that to your resume I will,
2: I will add, that to, add that for, for sure you know, it's a, speaking of resume, people call it an honor many, many people are saying okay, many people believe me best referee that has ever happened Okay, many such cases President Trump has suddenly arrived yeah. here at the podcast we already
1: had George Bush on. Oh, yeah. so why, why, why not? Why not get <laughs>
2: um, that? Was a lot of fun. I could have done a better job, probably. But that was, I mean, I was wearing a suit. How ridiculous! Just like yeah. no it's okay. That was fun. It was funny. You mentioned resumes towards the end of this session. Uh, one of the the pro tem staffers and I, we were in in you know our little huddle corner in the Senate floor, and I think they were they were debating the the budget, and he kind of he came up to me and he says, "You know, since you've been here, let's see, you, we have." A energy bill that passed, a budget that's about to be signed by the governor, and you went up and knocked on doors for Glenn Youngkin, and he's now the governor of wow. yeah. of Virginia. So you have a really powerful resume at this yeah, point. We, do. Uh, we just started joking and laughing, and but now, I mean, nothing uh, nothing compares to being referee. At the <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, so for the last question, we know you're a listener of the podcast, so oh, you no. know this question is coming. What would your magic wand be? If you could choose one thing to fix our politics, what would it be?
2: You know, I've thought a lot about this. And I had an answer, and then Brent Woodcock stole it. <laughs> and I, when you had him on a couple of weeks ago, I was like, that's what I was going to say. So then I came up with a completely other another answer. And then Senator Gailey stole that. Because <laughs> um, I'm a big abraham lincoln fan he's my favorite president in my if anyone goes into my office i have a a, you know uh, an etching of abraham lincoln and a Mm -hmm. statue of him and i said what we need in our politics is just more president lincoln's and then she went on this this whole talk beautiful talk about president lincoln And i'm like ah so i thought a lot about this and i think what we need to do is restore the monarchy (laughs) i think that um if we make america great britain again (laughs) um i think yeah full full restoration of the monarchy we will be no, that's uh, <laughs> you can keep you can keep that you, you can keep that in, but uh, that totally totally uh-huh, I, totally joking. I would love to be a fly on the wall. Senator <laughs> Newton heard that. Oh, he knows I'm a he knows <laughs> he, he knows he knows full well my my uh, my my monarchism. He jokes all the time about because I I say every once in a while I slip in some British isms okay. and uh, he, he calls me out on it. So that no surprise there um, about my monarchist sympathies. No, but it, it, to, to be fair, I think, you know, one of the things that I think we, we really need to fix is, and this is more probably on like a party level, you know, speaking specifically Democrats and Republicans. I consider myself a conservative first, and there are different elements that make up my conservatism. You know, I think, you know, there's definitely some constitutional conservatism. Probably some neo, you know, like, so neo, like, I'm a little bit of a neocon. Don't come, don't come at me, people. Oh, I love, yeah. love some Dan Crenshaw. Um, <laughs> you know, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher are some of my heroes. Come mm-hmm. on. Um, and, you know, and I'm an institutionalist. I believe, you know, I'm a traditional conservative and, and definitely socially conservative on many issues, probably to some people's surprise. But, you know, I think there needs to be room in both parties for people who maybe diverge on different issues. You know, again, not to say we don't need to be a big tent where we lose the conservative nature of the Republican Party and they don't need to be such a big tent in the, you know, in the Democrat Party where they inevitably become so conservative that they lose, you know, reasonable liberalism, but I do think there needs to be an understanding that, you know, there are there are lar- there's you know, there are many different streams of conservatism. There are many different streams, you know, in in liberalism, you know, from being, you know, prog- you know, super progressive to more moderate, and I think if we recognize that more, I think it, at a party level, and we allowed room for people who maybe think slightly differently on some different policy positions, that would then bleed into actual lawmaking, mm-hmm. and we might arrive at a at a more reasonable place where we can go back to a place where I think we are more bipartisan in nature, where there's room for reasonable opposition, mm-hmm. as opposed to this the kind of extreme partisanship. And I, because I think our, our own homes are in order, right? If the Republican Party is just trying to, you know, put square pegs in round holes to try and fit we all have to be this brand, otherwise you're a rhino, mm-hmm. or you're whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. Or you all have to fit this brand of the Democrat Party, otherwise you know you're just you know a Republican in sheep's clothing, like that. You know, like because yeah. if you're too moderate and not, you know not a, not enough progressive, um, I think if we fixed our got, if we got our homes in order and recognized that we can have some broader coalitions within this two-party system that we have, I think that would help. Um, that would help the lawmaking process and maybe help some of this you know, hyper partisan nature that we have,
0: it would probably preserve the two party system, right? Because more and more people are just saying, okay, yeah, I'm conservative, but I got this over here, I don't want to be called a rhino or Democrat, same thing. So they're just
2: not registering
0: for either party.
2: Well, and I think that the, the proof is in the data, right? right? How many people are unaffiliated voters and because and someone who had been there, you know, before, I mean, I've made a conscious decision that, you know, because I am conservative, and i believe in the majority of the republican platform that you know i got to be i want to and i want to be involved in politics so I, i've chosen my team mm-hmm. right and i'm, I'm going to be a part of the team and you got to be in it in it to win it and in it to fix it right. um so i think you know i've made that decision but i understand why people don't i understand why someone who's a conservative might say you know what i just can't get behind yeah. the gop or maybe someone who's uh, you know who consider themselves a, a liberal but maybe not they're not liberal enough for the Democrat Party of today. I think if, if we allowed for those broader coalitions, yeah, we, it, may, it may fix a lot of things and preserve the two-party system, because I do think there's, you know, I'm an institutionalist. I don't like change. So. <laughs> 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 you know? so, yeah, I think there's something to be said about that for sure. Yeah. Well, Andre
0: Beliveau, we appreciate everything you do for the Senate, everything you're doing in North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate y'all. The
1: Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more
0: information. Over the last year, you and I have gotten to know Andre. We've worked with him and certainly Senator Newton's office on some policy issues, some budget issues. If you follow him on social media, he is conservative. He works for a conservative senator and Senator Paul Newton But this conversation on the podcast and the conversations you and I have had with Andre, learning about the complexity of how he thinks about politics and his own journey. Sometimes I think we put folks in these boxes, right? They're conservative or they're liberal. Really, we all have this really unique journey. And I really appreciate just the way he opened up about it. I just really admire that. Tweet Tweet of of the the week. week.
1: So for this week's Tweet of the Week, we did receive a submission from Sue Ann Forrest, and she's at Sue underscore F-O on Twitter. And she submitted a tweet from Colin Campbell, a quote tweet, where he said, anybody making fun weekend plans, perhaps a nice road trip up I-95 through Virginia, or a quick jaunt up Glenwood Avenue. And there is a picture, that picture we referenced earlier, Um, on Glenwood Avenue from, what was that, 2013, 2014, Mm -hmm, um, with the Michelin Man superimposed into the picture. And NCDOT quote tweeted that and just put, stay home, Colin.
0: Yeah. So that was in reference to last week's Snowmageddon. This week, the same advice applies. Stay home.
1: What's your favorite winter meal? Like something that, like when you're cold, you want, is it like chili or what is it?
0: I do like chili but even more broadly than that soup tomato soup with some crackers that is just good warming comfort food grilled cheese guy yeah a little grilled cheese kind of dip it in but I'm, I'm all about turning on the oven too I'll bake something just to kind of generate some heat and just feel warm I'm there in the summer and spring I'm kind of eating on the go but, in the wintertime, it's you know cooking something, a soup, love it. And my wife makes you know just these great butternut squash soups, and man, that is exactly what I want in the wintertime. I see that in my weekend if we get the snow we're expecting.
1: My parents live in a house that's maybe one hundred and fifty years old, mm. and we have a big fireplace and we're big like sit in that room no tv in that room we just sit in there and play like games or drink hot chocolate in front of the fire they we lived on the road to the cemetery and there's like some big hills back there um illinois is not that hilly but you would go sledding come back put your really wet coat in the washer and dryer get it dry but during that time get yourself a cup of hot chocolate and sit in front of the fireplace there's nothing better than that
0: oh that does sound good (laughs) so we have gas logs at our house and it's just not the same it's easier I mean I I I don't cut wood and and it's a nice nice to look at but you know it just doesn't have that crackle I love a good fireplace. Growing up as a kid, um, you know, we had an old wood stove too that mm-hmm. that we used, and I, I remember just feeding that wood stove. It was one of those things too. Like I remember it would just dry out the entire house, and I remember if you touched it, you were getting degree burns. But yeah, I kind of miss that, and I in in some ways I I actually miss cutting wood and throwing it on the fire
1: me too i cannot tell you how many times i have been freezing cold going with my dad to cut wood load it up in the back of the truck and then when you get home you still have to unload the wood mm-hmm. and we have a spot on our back porch where we put it but we also have a popcorn maker where you just put like the kernels in and then you kind of shake it over the mm-hmm. fire yeah. so we had a lot of like fire related activities yeah. at my house
0: yeah but i have to say this guy I really do loathe winter, even though there are these comfort things, comfort food to eat. And I do, I'm looking forward to the snow. It's going to be pretty and nice, and I hope we get some snow. But I just cannot wait until spring. I am, I'm just such a... it
1: was 60 degrees yesterday. Yeah,
0: yeah, which was a nice little teaser. This past weekend, you know, I was at the beach, and I went surfing, and I put on this... You know, wetsuit and it's just yeah,
1: that sounds terrible. I hate it when I'm at my beach house and <laughs> I go to surf and it's just a little
0: too chilly, so I put
1: my wetsuit on. So oh, terrible, it's like
0: fifty degrees. I just I am looking forward to spring. I need warmer weather.
1: We hope this weekend maybe you'll get to see a little snow wherever you are, especially those folks in the western part of the state. I'm sure you still have snow from last week. But wherever you are holed up this weekend, stay warm, stay dry, and remember to do politics better. Those nose hairs, man, just like, they're taunting me in this way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm growing them for snow.
1: Yeah, well, they're white,
0: so. <laughs>